Jay Farner here, CEO of Rocket Companies. If you thought you missed your chance to refinance and save, think again. Mortgage rates have recently dropped below 3%, and Rocket Mortgage can help you save big. You could lower your monthly payment and prepare yourself for a better financial future. But you've got to act now. Call us today at 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com. Rocket. Conditions apply. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation with nationally known gerontologist Carol Zernio and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron. This program provides health, wellness, and other information for caregivers who are vital to the health and well-being of so many people across our country. Now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel. Thank you so much for joining us today on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. Now, we've got a, a gentleman joining us, Dr. Alan Molk, uh, saving lives, saving dignity, is the issue he wants to talk about. Uh, he is a board-certified emergency medicine physician, practices in Phoenix, Arizona, where he and his wife, Laura Bramick, live their parents to adult triplets. That's got to keep you busy. Asher, Ariel, and Eliza. Dr. Molk has worked full-time as an emergency physician since 1980. His training was all about saving lives at any cost, no matter what. And later in his career, when his mother developed Alzheimer's and dementia, he took a look at what that meant and what saving lives meant. His hobbies and passions include, and I love this, family, Judaism, music. He plays keyboards, guitar, and accordion by ear. His passion for dogs and sports, especially baseball, big Red Sox fan, golf, rugby, and cricket. One of the few Americans who even knows what cricket is. He's got a great sense of humor in the shenanigans, loves hanging out with family and friends, Likes to shop at Costco. Who doesn't? And he travels and enjoys lifelong earning. And Dr. Malk, thank you for coming on board. Thank you so much, Ron, for having me. And appreciate that uh, very warm and elaborate uh, introduction. And uh, I think based on that, I think uh, whoever's going to be listening to this knows a lot about me already. So thank you. For that. <laughs> so appreciate it. Well, tell me a little bit about what attracted you to emergency medicine. Well, that's uh, something that goes back many years. I started practicing in 1980. I can tell you that I was not clear when I finished medical school what I was going to ultimately do uh, come specialty-wise, anything from family practice to uh, general surgery to OBGYN. And then I realized that emergency medicine really does suit my personality because you kind of need to have a wide knowledge base. You need to know at least something about every medical condition, sometimes a lot about different medical conditions. And in addition, um, there's always a variety. There's always something interesting or exciting happening on a given day in the, in the emergency room. And it also involves shift work. So one of those few specialties when you're on, you're on, but when you're off, it's your time to yourself. So that part I found very appealing. And it worked for me for just over 40 years. And I've recently gone into semi-retirement. But I look back on my career with a great deal of joy and satisfaction. Uh, I do miss working full-time in many ways. But I will tell you that with COVID 
in the last year or two, the practice of medicine, especially in the ER, has become much more difficult and much more challenging. Um, and uh, then later on in my career, I got very passionate about end-of-life care, which um, is a, uh, a different discussion. Well, I want to... I. I... I love your your laying out your career. I, I had a very nice moment. Uh, my oldest son is an emergency room physician. And wow. when he was going into it, we spoke with an emergency room physician who said, you know, the best things about being an emergency room physician are that you never see the same thing twice and you have shifts. The worst thing about being an emergency room physician is you never see the same thing twice and you work shifts. <laughs> Yep, it's a uh, it's it's a mixed bag, but I've always in my life chosen to see the cup as half full rather than half empty. So, and that is why I've always been able to pretty much enjoy my career and uh, get um, joy and satisfaction, not just in taking care of patients, but in the social interactions with people, uh, with my coworkers, with nurses, and with my colleagues. Well, tell us about uh, your interest in. Uh, end-of-life care. Uh, in, in this country, I get the sense we don't do as well with that as some other countries do. Uh, Ron, you're right on the money about that. I will tell you it was somewhat counterintuitive uh, in a way because ER docs, emergency physicians, we, I think you mentioned this in the introduction, we are wired, we are trained. It's in our blood to save lives. You know, somebody comes into the ER by ambulance who is, we use the word crashing, meaning not doing well, circling the drain perhaps, um, having a, a, a crisis that could be life-threatening. And we get a rush out of that. We dive right in. We take care of the patient. We resuscitate. We intubate. We do everything that it takes to get the patient stabilized, treated, and then placed often in the ICU, and then our job is done, at least in that particular patient. So that has been much of what what I've done for 40 years. But I will tell you that over the last 10 to 20, 25 years, the face of emergency medicine has changed. We are now seeing much sicker people, people with many comorbidities, meaning they have whole bunch of different things wrong with them. We are seeing the unintended consequences of prolonging life. So we're seeing a lot more older patients who just aren't doing well, who have become frail and who are struggling and who may not necessarily be best served with aggressive care that is frequently futile, but may be served better with more passionate, gentle, and um, humane type treatment, including palliative and hospice care. Let's talk more about that in in a moment, but I want to remind folks who may have just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and our very special guest is Dr. Alan Molk. Uh, He is an emergency room physician in Phoenix, Arizona, and we're talking about saving lives and saving dignity. And we're talking about end of life care as well. And what Dr. Mulk just said to us is, is very interesting about a shift in not only the patient population that you're seeing, uh, but ways in which 
uh, maybe your, your goal isn't necessarily to keep someone alive. That is exactly correct, Ron. Uh, we, as physicians, so many of us still see death as the ultimate enemy. We see losing a patient as a failure. We see losing a patient as, oh my goodness, that shouldn't happen. That's not supposed to happen. And we lose track of the fact that whether we like it or not, life has a beginning, a middle, and an end. We sometimes lose fact of that very simplistic big picture because we are so focused on keeping patients alive no matter what, even with a poor quality of life. And there's one statistic that I just love mentioning, and that is a survey was done of physicians a number of years ago saying, asking this question to physicians, where would you want to be at end of life? And over 80% said, I want to be at home, surrounded by my family, my loved ones, and friends. Yet, we as physicians have this double standard where we don't necessarily do the same things for our patients because we are so obsessed with keeping them going at all costs. Well, I'm curious, you know, as, a, as an emergency room physician, you have a snap decision to make when someone comes in. So is there prevention for going to the ER? Is there a place to back that decision up? Or is it, do we have to retrain the emergency room? Carol, that is a great question. This, this is a, needs to be what I call a multi-pronged approach. Physicians need to be re-educated. There actually needs to be a culture change. And it is started. It is here. More and more ER doctors are being trained in palliative, doing fellowships in palliative and hospice care. So the, the educational component, the enlightenment of physicians, as well as the lay public, is, the, is in my view, the two important parts of how to address your question. And of course, the other big component is the, is the concept of people having the conversation, having advanced directives, talking to your doctor, talking to your family, talking to your spiritual leader, talking to your attorney, preferably an estate planning attorney, about what your wishes are in the event of a life-limiting illness, and also in the event of what if there is sudden death? What if you die suddenly of a massive heart attack or get killed in a plane crash or have a ruptured brain aneurysm? It is so important to have your wishes and your plans made known and intact ahead of time. That makes a world of difference and not enough is being done to address that. Stick with us. We're going to come right back to you. And I want to talk as well uh, to the experience you had dealing with your mother's uh, challenge with Alzheimer's disease and how that may have contributed to ways in which you look at end of life. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernil. We're talking from Phoenix, Arizona on the Caregiver SOS on air hotline with Dr. Alan Molk. So glad you're with us on Caregiver SOS On Air. 
The WellMed Charitable Foundation would like to remind you it is important to stay connected while social distancing. Caregiver stress may be higher now, and specialists are available to talk with. There's no question that we are living in not normal times, but whether the new normal will be the old normal is yet to be seen. So if you are troubled, if you are feeling stressed, ask for help. Services are provided at no cost. See more at caregiversos.org. Hello, friend. We are so pleased you are staying with us right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, talking with Dr. Alan Molk on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline. Saving lives, saving dignity is the way we began this conversation, dignifying the end of life. And, and Dr. Molk, you went through a transformation. You, you, you began to see perhaps uh, some right to dying and dignity in the end of life. Uh, how did your mother's Alzheimer's disease affect you? Boy, Ron, that's a great question. Um, I'll give you a brief blurb about my mother. She was, now we all, most of us think our mothers are the best people we ever knew. Those of us who had good experience with our mothers. And my mother was that person. She was kind. She was bubbly. She found the good in everyone. She was a great raconteur. Uh, She was filled with vitality. She was such a delight to be around. And when Alzheimer's hit, you know, I, we, my brother and I, uh, we're the only two children. We went through all the stages of grief, starting with denial. You know, now this couldn't possibly be happening to her. Why is she getting lost? Why is she getting confused? Why is she driving down wrong streets? And we eventually had to come to the point of acceptance that this is an untreatable disease and uh, it's a fatal disease. And we saw how she was stripped of her dignity. Towards the end, she no longer recognized people. She became incontinent. She was in a wheelchair. She needed to be fed. And all her faculties going away. I call that, I think all of us would agree, that is being stripped of your dignity. And for me to have gone through it with her... Now, obviously, I'm not the only person who has lost a relative from dementia. It's happened to a countless number of people. But from my perspective, it was so painful for her and for me, for both of us. And I realized one day, and I call it the epiphany, my own epiphany with her, when I was visiting her a few months before she dies, staring into space. And I thought to myself, what if... Five years ago, before she developed dementia, I had a crystal ball. And I said, Mom, I have bad news for you. Look in this crystal ball. This is what you're going to look like five years from now. What would she have said? I know what she would have said. She would have said, oh, no, 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 no. If I ever get that way, push me off a cliff. I know that's what she would have said. So it was very easy for me as a son who was a power of attorney to know that when she developed terminal pneumonia, that we're not not going to hospitalize her. We're going to have her on hospice care and make sure her end is comfortable and as dignified as possible because she was stripped of so much dignity for five years. 
And then I began to see patients in the ER who looked like my mother, who the family weren't sure what to do, who the family were insisting they want everything done for their mother, where there was disagreement between family members about aggressive care versus versus, um, more dignified and more comfort care. And that the the combination of my professional experiences and my own very personal experience prompted me to start writing. I'd never written before. I sat in front of my computer um, a few months before she died. I started to write the book before she died. It was just a form of journaling, dealing with my own feelings. And one day my daughter walked by, watched me type out Ariel, and she said, Dad, what are you doing? I said, I'm just typing down my thoughts about Grandma. She said, do you mind if I look? I said, sure. She looked at me, she said, and she was an English major at the University of Arizona. She said, you know what? For someone who's never taken a course in writing, you are not half bad. Maybe you should should, write a book. So I combined with my cousin, Bob Shapiro in LA, who also had a painful journey. He lost his wife at a young age from a brain tumor and was left with two small children. And the two of us just decided, let's let's write a book about this, about our experiences as ER docs and our personal experiences. Well, you know, the, the conversation that you're having is so interesting because I recently sat down with a family and the 87-year-old mom said, we need a wheelchair ready to push off a cliff, which, you know, the words jump off a cliff. She said, uh, my friends and I are talking. She had a very good friend who had... Lou Gehrig's disease, who had ALS, who, um, you know, committed suicide the day before he was going into assisted living because he couldn't face that future that you were just describing. And so how do we take the folks that we're talking to, these older persons who are saying, known that I don't want that, that's not what I want with the medical community um, you know, and, and family can kind of confuse things. But is that where we start the conversation? Carol, damn, you asked really good questions. That was a superb question. The conversation should really be had, Carol, way before an, a serious illness sets in, ideally. And I think people need to educate themselves. There's so many ways to educate yourself. You can go, uh, go to YouTube and look up, what is it like to be on a ventilator? What is it like to be on oxygen forever? What does it look like to have a tracheotomy tube in forever? What is it like to be in a wheelchair forever? And it's the visual impact of that will affect people's decision-making, will affect when someone fills out their advanced directives, I do not want to be on a ventilator if I've lost my faculties or if I have poor hope of recovery. And doing this in a preemptive way is so important. But very often, as you've correctly pointed out, people don't start talking about this when a critical or life-limiting disease sets in. And then people have to get around the table and talk. I always recommend to get a consult with a palliative or hospice person to talk about the options. All it takes is a phone call. Not hard to do. The problem is, and this is the difficult part, I know it sounds so obvious, is it's so hard to say goodbye. But yet, Carol and Ron, the ultimate act of love 
is to say goodbye. And I, and I say that because those of us who have had pets, and I'm a huge dog lover as well, we know that. We know that sometimes saying goodbye is the ultimate act of love, especially when we know that we're willing to accept that the end is near. Um, and embrace that and accept that and talk about it. Uh, also talk about not wanting to be a burden on your family. I know for a fact my mother would never have wanted to be a burden on a family. That She would see that as terrible loss of dignity. You know, elderly people love their independence. They love to feel they're not being stripped of their independence. Their independence is linked to their dignity. Talk about that. And we need to respect their wishes. And if there's conflict, conflict resolution needs to be addressed early so that everyone tries to get on the same page and we deal with a peaceful and dignified end of life, which everybody surely deserves. Carol, I know this is a tough, tough conversation for you uh, because you went through this with your mom. Well, you know, a, a, a lot of caregivers, you know, are faced with with this kind of um, observation, you know, the loss of dignity that you're talking about. And it and it strikes me that uh, sometimes we we wait too long to have the conversation because once somebody's sick, well, then you're not in your right mind. Right. If you have dementia, you're not in your right mind. If you have cancer, you're not in your right mind. And your family dismisses or ha- t- can dismiss some people's wishes because you're sick. Uh, and so I like the idea of uh, in, when you're well, when things are, are okay, that's the time to have the conversation uh, when you are in your right mind. My mother used to say, put me in a rowboat, take me out to the middle of Lake Erie and just dump me in the water, which is similar to push me over a cliff. <laughs> I keep thinking of the Titanic one, you know, where she just goes, you know, follow the the blue diamond out. <laughs> exactly. So, so Dr. Moe, uh, a lot of what you're saying uh, runs counter, as you were suggesting, to what you were taught uh, as an emergency room physician. Uh, and, and you talked about how uh, in the beginning, in the 80s, when you went into the emergency room uh, as a physician, you were taught to do everything you could to keep someone alive, uh, which in, I assume in more cases than not, was probably the wrong thing to do from an intellectual standpoint. Yeah. Uh, you know, and also what has changed dramatically and drastically over, over the last couple of decades is that there's been so much new technology. There's been so many advances in medicine that uh, we, we can start off by talking about heart disease. You know, you talk about all that's available with coronary stenting, open heart surgery, how that has been a game changer in prolonging the lives of so many people who otherwise would have died of coronary vessel disease. The problem then, these people then live into their, they live into their 80s, but then develop other problems. They develop cancer, they develop dementia, uh, they develop leukemia or lymphoma, uh, and you know, they become frail, they start falling, they get osteoporosis, they get strokes. So it's a whole new spectrum of diseases that we're now dealing with that are, as I mentioned earlier, are the unintended consequences of all the numerous advances in medicine in so many different specialties that now we are faced with 
We also faced for the baby boomers, which in itself is a whole discussion in its own about how we baby boomers are now. I'm one of them. <laughs> I'm now <laughs> how we have uh, become a major part of healthcare in, a, in in this country, and how are we going to deal with that uh, from a fiscal standpoint? That in itself is a whole separate discussion, and that. I think comes into play as well. You know, we baby boomers have, I think, a responsibility not to bankrupt the system. Uh, and we could talk for that for hours, um, but it, it's com- it's complicated. And for me, I want to keep it simple and say, let's talk about, let's get real. Let's talk about what what should we do when end of life appears likely or imminent. Let's do what's reasonable. Let's make people comfortable and let's not go the route or the route of aggressive, futile care that does very little other than to prolong the inevitable. How do we get a hold of your book? Oh, here it is. Uh, Oh, just pass it through the radio. I like that. Saving saving Lives. Saving Dignity by Alan Malk and Robert Shapiro. It's, a, it's not the same Robert Shapiro who defended O.J. Simpson, by the way. It's a nice I was going to ask. Shapiro. But ironically, they actually know each other. But that's another story. Yes. In the LA <laughs> area. And um, it's available on Amazon. It was a bestseller. And, um, you know, I, the, book is, the, the book is really directed towards everybody. It's, it's a relatively easy read, I believe, considering that it's a, not an easy topic. But it heightens, it heightens a lot of things that people need to think about. We are flat out of time. Okay. But we need to get you back and talk about the book, and, and we'll have uh, Christy Romero do that. Dr. Malt, thank you. For Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. Thanks for joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, an exclusive presentation of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. We welcome emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. Join co-hosts Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron next week for more on caregiving, improving the health and well-being of caregivers and their care recipients everywhere. For more on caregiving and podcasts of our programs, visit caregiversos.org.